Hello there. You are listening to the MCC Sunday Sermon. We are so glad you could join us. We pray that this message will encourage you, build your faith on your journey with God. Enjoy. Hey, um, my name's Daniel, if we haven't met before, and uh, my wife, Elise, who was up here on stage just before, um, we're part of the pastoral team here at MCC, and we want to welcome you this morning, especially if this is your first time at MCC. If you've not been to uh, our church before, maybe you haven't been to church at all before, um, but we do want to say a special welcome this morning, and we're really thrilled that you're here, and, and trust you're going to really enjoy it. And, and one of the things you're going to notice about this church, right, as you've probably already worked out so far, we take what we do really seriously. We're celebrating this morning the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, right? We take what we do really seriously, but we don't take ourselves that seriously, right? Which is why we did synchronized dancing in the middle of the service. Because Cooper has always wanted to be a part of a boy band, and today he got to live out part of that this morning. And so, and so we, we don't take ourselves too seriously. And, uh, and I trust that if you uh, stick around, that that's one of the things you'll notice. But hopefully also the other thing you notice is that this is a really friendly place. And Elise mentioned that after this morning's service, um, the cafe will be open with all of its usual treats, but also selling burgers and stuff today and Easter egg hunts for the kids, really for one reason, so that none of us really have to race off straight away. So we can spend some time actually getting to know one another and uh, I encourage you to do that. Um, hopefully your experience is that the church is really friendly. If they're not, tell me and I'll sort them out, all right? So, so that's good, but we're really thrilled that you're here this morning and, uh, and trust that's not by accident. I don't believe in coincidence. I believe that God has plans and purposes that are even beyond our own. And so uh, I don't think it's by accident that you're here this morning. And I really trust that if you'll open your heart, that just even this morning you might leave saying, do you know what? Something changed in my life. Um, that you might leave here to say, this morning saying, these people are really friendly, but, but also I met with God today. Is that cool? Um, I'm going to pray. And then perhaps to set the scene a little bit for this morning's sermon, we're going to have a look at a short video. Let's pray and then we're going to do that. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be able to come and to be able to share it freely. God, we don't take that for granted. Jesus, today we're reminded of all that you've done for us. But Lord, even if you didn't do another thing, even the fact that you saved and redeemed our lives, God, that is enough. Lord, this morning we worship you. Today, Jesus, we celebrate all that you've done in Jesus' mighty name. Let's check out the screens. Amen. Yes, Jesus Christ is alive. He rose from the dead in that day, that Easter Sunday morning, that first Easter, when Mary and Mary Magdalene and Siloam went to the grave expecting to anoint a dead body. They saw the angel sitting there. And they said, where is Jesus? The angel said, he is not here, he is risen. I submit to you tonight that that's the greatest news the world has ever heard. He is not here. He has conquered the grave. He's alive. And ladies and gentlemen, I believe that there's more proof that Jesus Christ rose from the dead than almost any other fact in Roman history. I don't believe there's a fact in ancient history today so well proven as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even if there was no proof, no historical proof, no scientific proof, and there is, 
I would still believe it because I believe this book is God's inspired word. And the whole early church went up and down the country preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the thing that shook the Roman Empire. That a man had risen from the dead. That he was alive. That death could not hold him. Christ is alive. He's a living Savior. I want to speak to us this morning from this subject, the power of the cross. The power of the cross. You know, that simple shape of the cross is one of the most powerful symbols in all the world. You can't get away from it, right? Especially in the 21st century, the cross is everywhere, not just in churches or in cathedrals, but in homes and in movies and in paintings and even in music videos. And of course, we wear them too, right? Crosses as earrings and as necklaces stitched and studded into leather and denim. I wonder what Coca-Cola or McDonald's would give for the kind of symbol that the cross is where countless millions wear it around the world every single day. You know, the cross on which Jesus was executed 2,000 years ago has been a symbol for his followers from very early on. At first, they were scared to display it publicly in case they were persecuted or mocked. But after the emperor Constantine converted to Christianity in the 4th century, crucifixion was abolished as a punishment and the cross was promoted as a symbol of the Son of God. It's been with us ever since. But but what does it mean in a culture like ours, the cross? And and why do we still want to wear it? Is it superstition or, or is it fashion or is it faith? And what's more, why would celebrating a symbol that would be the modern day equivalent of wearing an electric chair around your neck, what would that mean in our culture? And so while other ancient symbols gently fade on clay and stone, in museum cases, the most gruesome gruesome Roman instrument of torture continues to be part of the backcloth of our daily lives. Even in countries like ours, where churches every year seem to be pushed to the peripheral of society, the cross still remains. As an international symbol, the cross has been a staggering success. But I want to ask this this morning, are we so familiar with the cross that we don't really see it anymore? Could it be that we've forgotten the power and the passion and the significance of the cross. And so on Resurrection Sunday this morning, I want to speak from this subject, the power of the cross. The truth is, for the New Testament writers, they were absolutely convinced of the power and of the passion and of the significance of the cross. To them, the cross was never a a piece of fashion, something simply to be worn around the neck. No, 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 the cross was far more powerful than that. The cross was proof positive of who Jesus is and what he had come to do. Paul, in particular, was one of these New Testament writers who was so aware of the significance of the cross. And so for our text this morning, I'm going to take us to Colossians chapter 2. And verse 13 is where we're going to go this morning. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If not, it's going to be on the screen behind me in any case. Colossians 2 and verse 13 says this. 
When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so this morning for Resurrection Sunday, I want to speak to us from this subject, the power of the cross. The power of the cross. The significance of the cross. Which can be seen in at least three ways. Firstly, in a ransom paid. Secondly, in a redemption made. And finally, in a restoration displayed. The significance of the cross, firstly, can be seen in this. It can be seen in a ransom paid. In verse 14 of Colossians chapter 2, which we just read, Paul writes, he said, He forgave us our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. The Bible makes it clear that, that, that we all actually have the same need because we all actually have the same problem. That, that problem is sin. And sin, yes, is missing the mark, but it's actually a little more than just that. A couple of weeks ago, we've been talking about a series of Jesus' seven last statements. And, and I mentioned the fact that, that sin is actually more than just the things that we do and we say and we think, which are contrary to God. No, no, sin is actually a condition that we were born into. Sin is not really a word that we use very often, but, but, but that's actually what the Bible describes. That when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, the Bible says they sin once and for all. And so in the same way that if you were to try and trace your genealogy back, you know, through Ancestry.com, you could trace your, your, your DNA all the way back. Well, in the same way that you could trace your DNA all the way back to the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, the Bible says that spiritually there's a genetics that works the same way. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they sinned once and for all, and every person after the first Adam was born into sin. That's the reason why you and I have a propensity from birth to do the wrong thing. Because sin is actually more than just the things that we do and we say and we think which are contrary to God. No, sin is that condition that we're born into. And even if the Bible didn't say that, we kind of know that to be true, that we have a propensity towards doing the wrong thing. Come on, if you're a parent here this morning, you know that that's true. Little people have a propensity towards doing the wrong thing. No one ever taught you how to be selfish. You did that all by yourself. You have to teach children not how to be selfish. You have to teach them how to be able to share, right? We say things, you know, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Sharing is caring. We teach kids these things. Why? Because it doesn't come naturally to them. We don't have to teach people how to be selfish. We have to train children how to be able to share. No one ever taught you how to fight with your siblings, did they? You work that out all by yourself. No one ever taught you how to have a temper tantrum. It wasn't like someone sat you down in kindy and said, hey, here's how you do it. You throw yourself on the floor and you beat your fists against the ground and you scream until you get your own way. No one teaches us how to do that. No one teaches us how to swear. There wasn't like there was a moment where your parents sat you down and said, hey, you're doing so well with four-letter words. I'm going to teach you a few more. That never happened, did it? Why? Because we actually have a propensity towards doing the wrong thing. But when you play lawn bowls, which I play lots of, that's not true. Um, <laughs> But in lawn bowls, right, one side of the ball is weighted. 
And so when it rolls, it always rolls towards the weighted side. The Bible describes that as the power of sin. That you and I, left to our own devices, are born into sin, which is the reason why we always seem to lean towards doing things that are contrary to God's Word. And so sin is more than just the things that we do and we say and we think, which are contrary to God. Sin's actually the condition that each one of us are born into. But we're actually born in an alienated state to God. And that's good news because if we all have the same problem, then, then we all need the same solution. And that is what Jesus provides in the cross. We all have the same need because we all have the same problem. The problem is sin. And sin comes with a price tag. It comes with an expense. It has a long interest-free period, but eventually it serves the bill. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the Bible says it, but even if the Bible didn't say it, we know it to be true from our own experience. That when sin enters a marriage, it's amazing how it can bring death to that marriage. But when, when sin enters a business decision, it's amazing how it can bring death to that business. That, that sin's ultimate desire is to bring death and destruction. And ultimately what the Bible says is that the wages of sin is, is death. is to bring us into an alienated state from God. And so sin comes with a price tag, with a long interest-free period. But when sin served the bill, you and I were locked into a contract that we could not fulfill. And so we need forgiveness, but we have no means by which to be able to arrange our own forgiveness since we're actually the guilty party. And so we have, as the scripture puts it, a charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. What Paul is really saying is this, is that sin stands in the corner of each of our lives reminding us, I still know what you did last summer. The only way to silence sin and to remove guilt and shame and condemnation is to be able to pay the legal debt. And so Jesus comes in our place to satisfy that legal indebtedness, a, a fully satisfying and substitutionary atonement that he pays what we could not pay by standing in our place. Here's the truth. The cross seems like a rather elaborate way for God to show us that he forgives us. But that's just the point. The cross was not to show us that God forgives us, but to make provision for God to forgive us by fully satisfying our debt. We're forgiven by God precisely because the payment for our forgiveness was satisfied by Jesus on the cross. That God substituted himself in order to cancel out our account. In the Second World War, there was, in a prisoner of war camp, a story that became quite famous. Where a number of prisoner of war inmates were forced to be able to work on railways and on, on construction projects. And they would be marched out in the early hours of the morning and work on those projects and then come in at the end of the day. In one of those situations, there was a prisoner of war camp where they were building a railway, and, and at the end of the day when they got marched back in, one of the things that would happen is all of the tools that had been taken out, the picks and the shovels and the like, that they would be counted out on the way out, and they'd be counted in on the way in to make sure that the, the, the prisoners of war, that they weren't trying to hide or stash any of, the, any of these things. 
Well, on this particular day, as the group came in, wearied and and worn out from the day, having not been given much food and, and also being completely worn out from their time in these prisoner of war camp, they counted through the number of shovels and there was a shovel that was missing. As the story goes, that all of those that were in the prisoner of war camp were made to line up in front of the person who was in charge of that particular camp. And through broken English, the person began to exclaim, one of you must own up for taking the shovel. Well, 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 as each man stood there, sort of looking to the other to see who would step forward, no one stepped forward. And so the person who was in charge of the camp said, well, if none of you will take responsibility for stealing the shovel, then all of you will be punished in their place. After a few moments, one of the men who was standing in the line stepped forward. And then in order to be able to make a public spectacle of it, to be able to teach these these people who were now prisoners, that this was not something to be done, he received a public flogging in front of the rest of the prisoners of war. In the middle of his flogging, one of the other soldiers came to the person in charge of the camp and whispered in his ear, explaining that they had miscounted the number of shovels. There wasn't a missing shovel, they'd just miscounted when they'd first come in. That, that story went throughout the whole barracks because he was a man who had done nothing wrong and had stepped forward in order to be able to save the rest of his friends from also being beaten. When the Bible says that Jesus took our place, at least in part, it is the same as that man who stood in the line, stood with everybody else and took their place so that they wouldn't receive punishment. He substituted himself on their behalf. The only difference is this is that in that prison of war camp on that particular day, all of the men were innocent. No one had taken a shovel. And yet this man still stepped forward. But in the case of Jesus, actually all of us who stood in the line, we were guilty. We'd actually done the wrong thing. The only one who was innocent was Jesus. And yet Jesus stepped forward and took the beating that was actually reserved for us. And so the power of the cross can be seen in this. It can be seen in a ransom being paid. Let me read to you that verse again. For he forgave us our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away. How? Nailing it to the cross. The significance of the cross can be seen in this, a ransom paid, but it can also be seen, number two, in a redemption made. We wrongly assume that Jesus came to make bad people good. That Christianity and the Christian message is a message of behavior modification taught by a great moral teacher. I'll come to church, people say, once I've sorted myself out. Because those kinds of comments are the kinds of comments of people who believe that the church and Christianity is just about behavior modification. It's just about pulling your socks up and trying a little harder and doing a little better. And so people say things like, well, you know, I'll come to church, but I'll come to church when I've got everything sorted out in my life and I've got all the ducks in a row and, and I've worked out a few things. But which is really kind of the same as saying, I'm, I'm going I'm to have a shower once I've gotten clean. That the whole purpose of having a shower is in order to be made clean. And the beautiful thing about what Jesus has done is that every person can be accepted just as they are and then God begins a process in their life to begin to make things right. We assume that Jesus actually came to make bad people good. But as C.S. Lewis put it, 
Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Verse 13, this is, what, this is how Paul puts it in, second, in Colossians chapter 2. When we were dead in our sins and in the circumcision of our flesh, God made you alive with Christ. The Christianity isn't about behavior modification taught by some ancient moral teacher. No, no, no. Christianity is much more than that. Christianity isn't about making bad people good. Christianity is about making dead people live. That we were once dead in our transgressions and sin, totally oblivious to God, totally out of step with with God's plan for our own life. But at some point, Jesus came into our life and that which was dead came to life because God is in the business of bringing dead things to life. Isn't that what we celebrate in the resurrection? That Jesus was in the grave, but he rose again. And so when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus, that which was dead comes to life. And so by the ransom of the cross, Jesus canceled our debt in order that we might receive forgiveness by his mercy. But by the redemption of the cross, Jesus has made us alive to God in order that we might receive righteousness by his grace. See, by the mercy of God, he forgave us, canceled the the debt that was owed on our account. And that's good, but what God did is far more than that. God didn't just cancel the debt. Having canceled our indebtedness by giving himself as a ransom on our behalf, Jesus took it a step further and he credited righteousness to our account. I want to take a moment on this because this is important that we get this. That God has given us both mercy and grace, but they're different. Sometimes we talk about mercy and grace like they're the same thing, but they're not. The mercy of God ensures that we actually don't get what we actually deserve. That's God's mercy. But the grace of God means that we get the very thing we never deserved. I'm going to take a moment longer with this because I think sometimes we have a misunderstanding of God's grace. Because maybe you've been in a church experience like I have been where it's like, you know, you got to give people grace and grace and pastors have affairs, so you just got to give them grace. I just slipped that one in there, didn't I? And when people say that, I understand where they're coming from. We need to be kind. But they're actually misusing the word. Because God gives grace with repentance. God's mercy is for every single person. But God's grace follows repentance. If God gave grace without repentance, then every person's going to heaven. This is getting very quiet now in this Baptist church. If God gave grace without repentance, then every person's going to heaven. But that's not true. That's actually as a result of their decision to either put their faith and trust in Jesus or not. And so God gives grace following repentance. Now, I want you to see this. God's mercy is for every single person, whether they ask for it or not. God's mercy is such that he affords us the time to be able to repent, right? In order we might receive his grace. So God's mercy means I don't receive what I actually deserve. God's grace is me getting the thing I never deserved. God's mercy is that he didn't make me pay the debt. God's grace is that having forgiven me and cancelled the debt, then decided to be able to credit righteousness to my account. 
All right, to, to help us get this part, I'm going to use a uh, backyard cricket illustration, okay? Let's imagine we're playing cricket this afternoon. It's Easter weekend, we're playing cricket. And as we're playing cricket, I happen to hit the ball over the fence and break the neighbor's window, right? Now, if I go to the neighbor and I'm like, look, I'm really sorry, I hit the ball over, it smashed your window, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. If they turned around and said, hey, look, that's okay, I understand, backyard cricket gets out of hand, don't worry about paying for it, we'll fix it ourselves. That would be merciful, right? Why? Because I broke the window, I deserve to pay for it. But the fact that they're not giving me what I deserve, that's mercy, right? Let's imagine this situation. I hit the ball over the fence, I smash the window, I go to the neighbor and say, hey, look, I'm really sorry that, that I broke your window. Like, it's my fault, I'll pay for it. And they say, hey, look, we, we, don't want you to, we don't want you to pay for it, we'll pay for it ourselves. And by the way, we'd also like to give you a brand new car. I'd be thinking, is there anything else in your house you want broken? <laughs> Why? Because it's merciful that they don't give me what I deserve. But it's gracious that they gave me the very thing I never deserved. It's the mercy of God that forgives us, right? That we don't have to pay a debt that we actually couldn't pay anyway and we had no means to be able to make right. That's the mercy of God. But God went further than just his mercy. God gave us his grace, right? He, he not only canceled the debt, he credited the righteousness of Jesus to our account. So that when God sees us, he sees us in light of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We should never deserve the grace of God. That's as crazy as breaking the neighbor's window and then they give you a car, right? But that's what God did. And so the power of the cross can be seen in this, in a ransom being paid. Yes, by God's mercy, we receive his forgiveness. But it can also be seen in this, in a redemption being made, that we become the recipients of a grace that we never deserved. And so the cross of Jesus is not just the place of our forgiveness, though that's true. It also becomes the point of our exchange. In 2, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, this is what the Bible says. It says, for he, talking about God, made him, talking about Jesus, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen to the way the message translation puts it, right? In Christ, God put all the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so that we could be put right with God. And so the power of the cross can, yes, be seen in a ransom being paid on our behalf, a debt that we could not pay as a result of sin. But, but, but much more than that, God also gave us and credited to our account his righteousness so we receive a grace that we never earned nor deserved. It's a redemption being made. Luther called this the great exchange. That, that the cross is more than just a place of our forgiveness. It's the point of our exchange. That on the cross, Jesus becomes ugly and wicked and defiled and evil and corrupt and rebellious and hideous and perverted when he puts on our sin in order that we might become perfection and righteousness and holiness, and purity, and innocence. The cross is more than just about our forgiveness. It's the point of our exchange where we receive a grace we never, ever deserved. It's almost a good place to clap. Almost. One saint put it like this. He became what we are, that he might make us what he is.
The significance of the cross can be seen in a ransom being paid, in a redemption being made, but here's the third one, in a restoration that's displayed. I'm going to ask if Grant would come back. We don't need the whole worship team, but if Grant would come back and play keys for us this morning, that'd be awesome. You know, it was at the cross that Jesus' body was broken. Isaiah tells us that by the time Jesus actually makes it to the cross, not that he's unrecognizable as Jesus. The Bible says that he's unrecognizable as a man. We've talked about a ransom being paid. We've talked about redemption being made. But here we're talking about restoration being displayed. That's the significance of the cross. In Isaiah 53 and verse 5, the Bible says this, talking about Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. What Isaiah is really saying here is that Jesus' body was broken in order that our lives might be made whole. In the New Testament, Paul continues to use this phrase over and over to describe Christians. And this is the phrase he uses. He says, for those who are in Christ. You remember in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, Paul uses this phrase. He uses it numbers of times to describe Christians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Paul uses that phrase repeatedly to describe Christians, for those who are in Christ. And here's the point I'm trying to make this morning, right? That the significance of the cross can be seen in this, in a ransom being paid, in a redemption being made, we become the recipients of a grace we did not earn or deserve, but also in a restoration displayed as well. That Jesus' body was broken so that our lives could be made whole. Maybe you've heard sayings like this, and in part, there's some truth to them, but in some ways, they also, they also mislead us. The idea that there's a God-shaped hole inside of every single person, and we can try and fill it with lots of different things. We can try and fill it with this and that and with whatever, and, but nothing will ever fill the God-shaped hole that's in our lives, but because only God can fill a God-shaped hole. And there's some truth to that that we do in a pursuit to try and make ourselves right and try and make sense of the world, that we can pursue a lot of different things. And until we come to Jesus, that none of it is actually ever really fulfilling. And so there is a sense in which there is a God-shaped hole in all of us that we can fill or attempt to fill with lots of different things, but only God ultimately can fill that space. But here's the part where that illustration breaks down is that it assumes that we are basically whole on our own. There's just a little bit missing. Like we're basically together. But there's just like a little piece. Just, we just need a little bit of God just to fit into that little bit of a hole, and now we're complete. We're the full box set all together. And maybe you're a little more together than, than I am. I know Elise is more together than I am. But here's the truth about human experience. It's not like we're basically together. And there's just a little piece that's missing. A truer example of that is that we are completely broken. And it's not that God is just filling a little bit of a hole. God's putting this whole thing back together, right? That's the beauty of he was crushed for our iniquities, right? That his body was broken so that our lives could be made whole. That maybe a truer statement would be this, that God is actually taking the broken pieces of our lives and he's fitting them back together. 
If you've got little kids or, or perhaps you've been around little kids or you remember being a little kid, do you remember those like 20-piece puzzles you did as a child? You know, the ones where they give you like the backing and they give you the border like the hard part's already done? And then for the kids who have really poor dexterity, they put like a little knob on the piece so you can put the fire truck where the fire truck is supposed to go. If you're ever having a down day and you feel like you're not accomplishing much, if you do one of those 20-piece puzzles, you'll feel like you're really winning at life. When Paul says for those who are in Christ to describe Christians, ultimately what he's saying is that our lives are a bit like that. That that actually you could take the broken pieces of our life and you could scatter them. And what God is doing is he's taking the broken pieces and he's fitting them back together within the borders of his grace. That's why he says for those who are in Christ. Because it's not like there's a little bit of a hole and God just needs to be able to fill that. The truer thing is that we're actually broken people and God is fitting us back together within the borders of his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his goodness. And so the power of the cross can be seen in these three ways. By the ransom of the cross, Jesus cancelled our debt in order that we might receive forgiveness by his mercy. By the redemption of the cross, Jesus made us alive to God in order that we might receive righteousness by his grace. And by the restoration of the cross, Jesus is making us whole in order that we might display his likeness by his power. I wonder if you might stand to your feet this morning just as we pray. And I want to read something for you from the message version. You can keep your eyes open for this part if you want to, but if you want to, you can also just hear these words again with your eyes closed. I want to read to us the passage we actually read right at the very, very start, Colossians chapter 2. But but I want to read it in the message version because I want you to hear it in the kinds of words we use all the time. We've talked in detail about what Colossians chapter 2, what that passage actually means and what it's about, but I want you to hear these words in the message translation. Listen to this. Entering into this fullness is not something you figure out or achieve. It's not a matter of being circumcised or keeping a long list of laws. No, you're already in, insiders. Not through some secretive initiation, right, but rather through what Christ has already gone through for you, destroying the power of sin. If it's an initiation, right, you're after, you've already been through it by being submitted to baptism. Going under the water was a burial of your old life. Coming up out of it was a resurrection. God raised you from the dead as he did Christ. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. But God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, the old arrest warrant cancelled, and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross, and he marched them naked through the streets. The message just says it's slightly different, but it sounds good, doesn't it? And so this morning, I want us to have as a full view the significance of the cross A symbol that sometimes perhaps even I'm guilty of taking a little bit lightly because we're so familiar with it. 
But at Easter especially, it gives us the chance to be reminded again that symbol that stands on church steeples and that people wear around their necks and that's so common for us, that there is great significance and power and passion to the cross, both in a ransom being paid on our behalf, in a redemption that's been made for us, and in a restoration where God is putting the pieces of our life back together in the borders of His grace, His forgiveness, and His goodness. Can I pray for us this morning before we finish? Just with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'd love to pray for us this morning. Lord, I thank you this morning for every single person who's in this room. Lord, I thank you today, God, for your hand upon each person's life. God, each one greatly loved by you. And Holy Spirit, I ask today that even as we leave this place, that Lord, we might leave a little bit different than when we arrived. That God, we might leave today fully aware, God, that you are good, that you do love us, And that, Lord, you displayed it for all to be able to see 2,000 years ago. That, Jesus, you completed it all at the cross. But then you rose again so that we would be aware that when you said it's finished on the cross, it really is finished. We really can receive right relationship. We really can be made right. Lord, we thank you for that today. Lord, I pray even over this Easter break that, God, we'd be reminded again of your goodness in our lives. In Jesus' mighty name. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're going to finish in just a moment. But this is our custom. We do this in all of our services. And in just a moment, I'm going to lead us all in a prayer. It's a really simple prayer. It's just a prayer that that acknowledges that I need God. Truth is, we all do. It also acknowledges that, that I need God's forgiveness. Truth is, no one has to point out to us that we've made mistakes. We know that all too well ourselves. Thirdly, that God, I thank you that you love me. The Bible says that God proved that he loved for us when Jesus died on the cross while we were still sinners. And finally, Jesus, I want to put my faith and trust in you. I'm going to get us all to pray this prayer. We do this in all of our services, but maybe you're here today and and you've never prayed a prayer like that, putting your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want to encourage you today that as we pray this prayer, to pray it out loud, but to mean it in your heart to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Or maybe you're here today and you prayed a prayer like that a long time ago, but you'd acknowledge that you've walked away from God. And today you need to rededicate your life to Him. Again, as we all pray this prayer this morning, I'm going to ask that you'd pray this prayer, meaning it with your heart and confessing it with your mouth. Church, would you pray this prayer with me? I'm going to pray the first part. I'm going to get you to repeat it after me. Let's pray this together. Pray, dear Jesus. Come on, a big, loud voice, everyone together. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning. And I realize that I need you. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of all of my mistakes. Jesus, wash my heart completely clean. Jesus, I thank you that you love me, that you proved it when you died on the cross for my sin. Jesus, from this morning on, I want to live for you. I put my faith and my trust in you, Jesus, as my Savior and my Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and change my life. In Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said, Amen. Hey, you know, this morning, if you prayed that prayer, maybe for the first time, 
or maybe for the first time in a little while, and you meant that. If you've come this morning with somebody, can I encourage you that after this morning's service to go to your friend and say, hey, I prayed that prayer. I reckon they're going to be really excited for you. If you didn't come with anybody, you just sort of wandered in. You saw these cars in the car park and thought, I'd come and check this thing out. They must be giving away free chocolate, and we are. But you haven't come with anyone today. You're not sure who to be able to share that with. After this morning's service, you'll see the information desk. At the information desk, you'll see these up. These are Connect cards. And there'll be somebody there that you can meet with and you can share with them, hey, I prayed that prayer today and I meant it. And I would encourage you, if you prayed that prayer, meaning it this morning, I'd encourage you to do this. Every day for the next six days, get up and pray one simple prayer. Pray, God, help me to live for you today and then try and do it. And some days you'll feel like you get it right and other days you'll feel like I didn't get that right. At the end of six days, just come back to church. Do that for a few weeks and a few months and begin to see the difference that God makes in a person's life. I'd encourage you to do that today. You'll see some of the team who have got those Connect cards. You'll also see a team that's at the Alpha Desk. You might be interested in being involved in that as well. But I'd encourage you to keep going on that journey of faith, having made the most significant step by praying a prayer that puts your faith and trust in Jesus. Come on, can we put our hands together this morning for those who prayed that prayer, meaning it. All right, you can take your seat just for a minute. But as you take your seat, would you please put your hands together for Anton Smith and for Zach Larkin as they make their way up here. Because for the final part of our service today, we are going to finish, actually not in here, we're actually going to finish around the pool today. And uh, we're going to be baptizing these two guys in water. So we're going to hear from, yeah. Yeah. And so we're going to take a moment. This is, this is Zach's mum. This is not just a random stalker who just walked down the aisle with a phone there. Um, but, but we're going to take a moment to be able to do this. And this is pretty significant. I know there'll be some people who are here today and you're here to be able to celebrate with Anton and, uh, and with Zach. And can I just say thank you for being here this morning to do that. It's a really significant thing in a person's journey of faith. Uh, water baptism is a really significant thing. We, we even mentioned it this morning in the, in the message because... Because water baptism doesn't make anybody a Christian. But water baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward reality. Baptism is really significant in a person's journey of faith. Um, It's significant for a few reasons. One, Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. If it's good enough for Jesus, it is good for us too, right? But not only that, Jesus actually encouraged all of us to be baptized when he said, go into all the earth making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so baptism is significant because Jesus himself was baptized. And it's significant because Jesus encouraged us to be baptized and because it was the practice of the early church. But the real significance of baptism is actually what it signifies. That, that baptism doesn't make a person a Christian. And we've done some baptism classes. And I want to actually say thank you to Trevor and Sue Pedler who ran those classes. Will you put your hands together for those guys? And one of the things we've emphasized in those classes is that baptism doesn't make you a Christian. Becoming a Christian is about putting your faith and trust in Jesus. It's as simple as praying the prayer we just prayed before, accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what makes you a Christian. But the significance of baptism is an outward demonstration of that inward reality. That the minute you said yes to Jesus, inwardly something changed. And that takes a while to be able to work its way into the outer parts of our life. But that inward reality is what we celebrate in water baptism. 
that, that in baptism, and this is what we're about to do in just a moment, the, these guys are going to go under the water, identifying with the death and the burial of Jesus. And, and, and Zach's mum has let me know that depending on how naughty he's been this week determines how long we hold him under the water. That's not, that's not true. That's not true. We don't have any breathing apparatus. No, I'm just, I'm kidding. But, but in baptism, these guys are going to go under the water and they're identifying with the death and the burial of Jesus. But of course, Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. While hell was celebrating the death of the Savior, heaven was just counting to three, right? Because on the third day, Jesus rose. And in the same way, these guys are going to come back up out of the water, identifying with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That, that, that this new life they live, they live in the resurrection power of Jesus. It's not just them on their own. It's not just them just trying to live a good life. No, 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 no. They've received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They've identified with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And now, of all the days to be baptized, this kind of seems like the most fitting day of the year to get baptized. We're going to baptize you guys. And so I want to take a moment just to be able to hear some of your story. And uh, firstly for you, Anton, um, how did you, um, how'd you first come to faith? When did you put your faith in Jesus? Uh, Daniel, I grew up with uh, being a Christian. I was brought up the Christian way. But of course, during the way, I also took the, the naughty way. Um, I've seen the whole world. I've been all over. And I think if I can say a specific day, what I actually met God was last year Easter. I was on my way to uh, the Congo traveling, taking a vehicle up. And uh, on the border of uh, Angola, we were stopped. And the person traveling with me was arrested that, that first day before Easter, put in prison. And uh, I tried to phone all my contacts all over the world trying to sort the problem out. Eventually, I realized that there's only one person what can sort this problem out, and that was to pray to Jesus, to ask God to help us. So I did that Monday uh, after uh, the Sunday, I prayed and I asked God to please help us. Uh, the Tuesday morning, the person appeared in court. It was all sorted out. He was released. He paid a fine, uh, $80 fine, and we were deported out of uh, Namibia. And then I only, on the way to the South African or to the Botswana border, uh, there was a sunset, and I realized that it was only God who helped us to get out of this situation. All my contacts all over the world could have not solved the problem, but by going onto my knees and, and praying to God for help, and He helped us, and He showed me the sunset, and then I only knew that if I don't believe in Him, uh, He is the way, and He's the only way. And uh, I have to change my whole life from that moment on. Uh, that's why I think I started believing 100% in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Sounds like we should make a feature-length film just of that part of the story, right? Doesn't that, doesn't that sound like that? You started coming along to MCC a few months ago. Um, talk to me about what God's done in your life just over the last couple of months. Uh, well, I'm a new boy in Australia. I arrived in Australia in, in, March, in November last year. And I think I was the second uh, Sunday what this uh, 
community started or this church started here, I were here for the first time and immediately when I walked into here, I knew that this is the place what God sent me to. And since then for me, to come every Sunday to church is like a, I have to, there's nothing else what I can do. And that's what this church uh, means to me and I'm very happy to be here. When you give him a round of applause. When, when you come to church back in November, when we're still trying to work out how to switch the lights on in this building, how long had it been since you'd been in a church? I know, I think maybe 20 years. Uh, I worked up in Africa uh, for the last 16 years. I never went to church in Africa. Although every time we do uh, take the wrong path, we know that we're on the wrong path. And uh, I knew the whole time that my whole life had to change. I can't carry on like this. And I'm happy to be here. It's really exciting to be able to baptize you today. For you, knowing some of your story and what God's done, just even over the last little bit. And Anton would be one of the first people here on a Sunday. Big smiling face. He's like, I had to be... He he went back to Africa for a short break. And you're like, the thing I'm going to hate is I'm not going to be at church on Sunday. And uh, it was lovely to see you come home from that trip. But... For you today, the significance of being baptized, what does this mean to you? Well, for me today, is it's a beginning of a new Anton. Uh, I want to show the world, I know that uh, they're always going to be sin, the devil always going to try me out, but I'm going to totally give my whole heart to Jesus, and from now on, I'm going to only live for Jesus Christ. You know, upon the confession of your faith, it's a real privilege today for us to be able to baptize you. That'll be very cool. Um, this is Zach. Everyone say hello to Zach. So, Zach, for you, um, when did you first put your trust in Jesus? Well, I've always grown up in a Christian family, so I've always had the belief that God was real, and I fully trusted that. And it was only when I was about 16 and 17, though, that I actually decided to actively doing stuff about it. And more recently, I've just felt more compelled to do more, like without any shred of a doubt, uh, just to put my, like, faith in Jesus. So, yeah. And you also look like Jesus. That's helpful. Oh, yeah. So helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, For you, being baptized today, it's significant because of baptism, but also significant that it's happening here and at the center. you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was actually here before any of the building was actually built, and I helped do all the electrical work here. So I got to see this place every stage, like stage, and just seeing it progress to what it is today is amazing. And that's what made me want to be one of the first people to be baptized, is because I was here when it was first built, so I want to be one of the first to do things here. That's pretty special. And uh, it's pretty cool that the first thing we're going to do in our pool apart from when Caleb and his kids jumped in at Christmas time, just to double check it all worked, um, is to baptize people. We'll start learning to swim classes and, and water aerobics and things like that in the months to come. But it is cool that we're, we're using it today as Australia's best baptismal font. That's pretty cool. Um, it's a real privilege today to be able to baptize you guys upon the confessions of your faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we're actually going to do this all together as a church family. In fact, actually in the water today is going to be uh, Zach's dad, Dave, who's also one of our local chappies. 
And, uh, and so Dave's going to be in the water there. And the other person who's going to be in the water this morning is Chris Cookson. And uh, that's pretty significant for you because they're two people who've played a pretty significant role in your journey of faith. And so, uh, and so that's going to be a real privilege. So this is actually how we're going to do this. These guys are going to go and get prepared. And we're actually going to head out to the pool and do that. Before we go, we're going to pray. But, but we're going to head out to the pool. Just a couple of things to be aware of, all right? We're all heading out around the pool. Um, so that host team will help us because it's sort of like single file to get through the pool gate. Um, it's designed so you can't have a mass of people go through the pool at one time on purpose, right? So, so it'll take us a little bit to get out there so we're not in any rush. If you've got little kids with you, then they are your responsibility around the pool, okay? And so uh, you can head out there. Conveniently, the playground overlooks the pool. So if you think, you know what, it's going to be too tricky to have kids around this pool, um, you can go to the playground, you can still be involved. It's right next door. Um, but we're going to head out there and do that. Before we do that, we're going to pray for these guys, and then we're going to head out, go around the pool, and conclude our service baptizing these, these gentlemen. Well, Lord, we just thank you today. God, we thank you for these confessions of faith that we've heard, that God have encouraged our hearts as well. Lord, we pray today, Lord, for Zach, that this would be a really galvanizing experience in his journey of faith, that God, he'd be able to look back and be able to hang his faith on. I remember that moment when I was baptized and how significant it was for me. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for your hand upon his life, that God, he would know your plans and that he would walk in them. Father, that he wouldn't look to the left or to the right, but God, his life would bring glory to your name. Father, we thank you for him. God, we thank you for this significant step in his journey of faith as he's baptized today. And God, we also thank you for Anton. God, who's been in all different parts of the world, but never far from your grace. That, Lord, you have a plan and a purpose for this man's life. That, God, you have rescued him on purpose and for a purpose. And so, Lord, today we pray for your hand upon him. That, God, again, this would be a really significant and galvanizing experience. That, Lord, both Zach and Anton have already put their faith and trust in you. But this, as they go through the wars of baptism, would be a really significant moment. Father, I pray that Anton would become increasingly aware. God, even over the months that are ahead, God, of those plans and those purposes, that, God, you would speak to his heart and, God, give him dreams and visions. Lord, we thank you for that. God, we commit them to you today in Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said? Amen. Thank you once again for joining us. Feel free to contact us on our Facebook, our website, and jump on our Instagram at mcc.church. Also, make sure to rate and review as well as share. Finally, from all the team at MCC, have a blessed day. And until next time, bless you.